This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I am your host, Dr. Ari Barbalat. I'm here today with my guest, Aaron Leibel. Aaron is the author of the new book, Figs and Alligators, An American Immigrant's Life in Israel in the 1970s and 1980s. Aaron writes for the Jerusalem Post and Washington Jewish Week newspapers. He is the winner of two Rockauer Awards for Excellence in 2018 and 2019 from the American Jewish Press Association. He lives in Maryland with his wife, Bonnie. We're here today to discuss his new book, which was published in 2021 in New York by Chickadee Press. Aaron, it's an honor to be with you today. Thank you very much. It's an honor for me to be here. Thank you. Um, thank you for taking the time to talk with me and share your wisdom as manifested in your book with our audience on the New Books Network. Thank you again. Okay. What inspired you to write this book? Well, I'm not sure that inspire is the right word. Um, I had never intended to write a uh, memoir, <clears throat> but I review books. Mm-hmm. And, and one day I was, um, I was reviewing a book that possibly was uh, boring or I got tired, whatever. I started to, to daydream mm-hmm. and I started to think about my time in Israel. And I started, uh, started typing anecdotes into the computer. And I love doing it. Um, and so I decided I had previously, <clears throat> excuse me, I had previously written a novel, which I had uh, failed to find a publisher for. <clears throat> and I self-published it, which in my opinion was foolishness on my part. So I decided with this book that I would try to find a publisher. And if I didn't, I would find some way to uh, publish it in a very limited edition so that my children and my grandchildren could uh, 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 could read it. And um, uh, um, in the interim, I found Chickadee Prince books. And as they say, the rest is history. What was your life like in the United States before you made Aliyah? So uh, before we... Uh, uh, before we made Aliyah, 
I had uh, gotten a bachelor's degree in, in history from the University of Maryland. And I was uh, in graduate school at, at, in the Department of Government and Politics working on my doctorate. Um, uh, um, my wife, Bonnie, was a research nurse. Um, um, and, and we had one daughter. Uh, we had a five-year-old daughter. This was in 1972. And she was pregnant with our second child. So, so Bonnie stopped working. Um, and she was very busy uh, taking care of our older daughter and our younger one, who was born six weeks before we made Aliyah. Um, and, uh, and I was busy uh, finishing the research on my dissertation um, uh, and working as a, uh, as, a, as a teaching assistant in the department. Bonnie uh, was extremely busy uh, taking care of our two kids, as I said, and typing my dissertation on a typewriter huh. with uh, several carbon copies. Anyway, I finished before we left, and we made Aliyah in September of 1972. How did you meet your wife, Bonnie? What attracted you to one another? So, so Bonnie and I, uh, Bonnie and I were working in the dining hall at the University of Maryland when the boss of the dining hall said, you two, take the trash down. Despite that very unromantic uh, 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 beginning to our relationship, um, Bonnie was a, a, a was an attractive woman, very intelligent woman, talented, sociable. Uh, um, many of her talents I didn't learn about until after we got married. Um, so, so we dated uh, for for uh, some time. Uh, I'm at the university for about a year, um, and then I got. I got to, uh, we, uh, we became engaged, and I got to meet her family. So there was some, uh, uh, there were problems because Bonnie, Bonnie's uh, family was uh, Protestant, and of course my family was Jewish. But fort fortunately, or unfortunately, however you want to look at these things, I was an extremely assimilated Jew at that time. Mm -hmm. And so when we got to talking about our future, uh, with her family, I was willing to uh, to make all of the concessions. So, so when I visited her her, her family on the weekends, we would go to church, mm -hmm. um, and I agreed that uh, that our children would be raised as Christians. Of course, they weren't raised as Christians because life changes, as we know. Um, um, we got married in a, uh, we got married twice, once in her synagogue, which was in rural Maryland, and once, uh, uh, and once by a rabbi, uh, by a reform rabbi. Right. Now today, uh, of the, of, of the percentage of non-Orthodox Jewish people marrying Christians is very high, but back in, back in uh, 1963, that wasn't the case. And we had a very difficult time finding a, finding a, a rabbi who would marry us. Right. What can you share about the way your relationship had unfolded? About how our relationship had unfolded? Uh, uh, in the context of date? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
before, yeah, between dating and marriage, dating and engagement, is there anything you can share? Well, as I said, I was very attracted to Bonnie. We, uh, we spent a lot of our time uh, um, walking on campus. I had no money. So we spent a lot of our time walking on campus. Um, and, I, and when I was flush, I would take her, take her to the hot shops which was a, a chain of uh, restaurants, uh, one of which was in College Park, uh, where the University of Maryland is located. Um, and I would get, get a hot of coffee, a cup of coffee, and she would get, get uh, ice cream. Wow. So that was a big, that was a big part of our, of our mating ritual. And we, we dated for, um, uh, for maybe six months months before I asked her to marry me. On page 16 of your first chapter, you write about some of your first impressions of Israel. And you say, fortunately, this rudeness has ceased. Perhaps this change has been spurred by more frequent travel abroad, which in turn has helped civilize many travelers. Or maybe they're less tense, more confident, as they live in a more prosperous Jewish state. Can you describe what you mean by this statement in this assessment of Israeli psychology? Sure. So when we lived in Israel, the people were much less prosperous, much less educated, um, very intense on getting ahead because they were, or because as I said, they were uh, less wealthy and they had very, they had very little uh, um, experience in traveling abroad. Uh Um, And so um, they simply uh, didn't pay much attention to the niceties, to the niceties of life, to the politeness of life. I think the greater prosperity and the greater education of Israelis now has sort of rounded off the rough edges, if you will, has made them has made them more polite and more interested in the, or the, or, or the incident I was talking about, about in the book was how when we, or, or when we would land, Israelis would, instead of waiting for the plane to come to a stop as they're, as they're supposed to and as they're told, would immediately jump out of their seats and take down their luggage and try to run off the plane as soon as possible. So again, I think that um, that a more prosperity, more education, more 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 worldliness has kind of reduced this roughness that they had. In your subsequent chapter, in chapter two, you describe Mevaseret Zion, where you first lived after you had arrived. What were the fellow families in your building like in Mevaseret Zion? So, so we lived with. Um, with one uh, with one Romanian family, oh, there were four families in each building. So the family above us uh, was very nice people, but unfortunately, they didn't speak Romanian, they didn't speak English, and our Hebrew was too primitive at the time for us to communicate very well. But the other two families in our building were English speaking. One of them was the Cone family. So they were a little older than the rest of us. And um, they sort of took us under their wing. They invited us to dinner many times. And we talked a lot. 
he, he was a professor of sociology at the University of Vancouver, uh, whose interests were gypsies. Hmm. And, and also, uh, he was interested in the Bedouin. And as a matter of fact, he, he took Bonnie and the kids uh, to, visit, uh, or to visit a Bedouin encampment that wasn't too far from the center. Isn't that something? Yes. Yes. And they were there. They, uh, they were only there for a year. He, he had a sabbatical. They were, as I say, they were very interesting and very nice people. The other people were the Charleses, which, which, which is uh, uh, um, the uh, uh, husband, wife, and two daughters. We also had two daughters at the time, so that was something that we had in common. Uh, the Charleses were Australian, um, at, but, but they had come to Israel from Canada. Uh, um, Yitzhak, the man, had been working in Canada before he came to Israel. Uh, <clears throat> He was a very, uh, an extremely intelligent and competent person. Um, he eventually went to work for a, for a uh, importer uh, in Jerusalem. His family was from Czechoslovakia, hmm. um, and they were extremely wealthy. They, they owned uh, steel mills uh, in Czechoslovakia before, uh, before the Nazis took over, and, and, and of course, stole of their wealth. <clears throat> wow. Excuse me. So, so we used to uh, visit them very much, uh, very much. Uh, we became uh, friends with them uh, uh, during most of our stay in Israel. Um, uh, uh, we especially uh, enjoyed going to visit with them because not only did we enjoy their company and did our, our daughters and their daughters get along, but they had some delicious delicacies that we couldn't afford, and we loved eating them at their house. Wow. What were some of your favorite walks to take in Jerusalem? And are there any memories of such walks that you can share with us? Sure. So, so I'm someone who loves to walk. It, it uh, relaxes me. It allows me to think. It's, a, it's just, for me, it's a wonderful experience. It's a wonderful way of passing time. And, I, and I've walked all of my life. When I was on the kibbutz, I used to go for walks with, uh, with one of my friends on the security road. Uh-huh. So, so, in, so in the book, I describe this long walk that I used to take on, on Saturday from, from where we lived in northern uh, Jerusalem. It was about an hour, hour, a little more than an hour walk to uh, Independence Park, which is in the... Which in the uh, which is in the heart of Jerusalem, but I also used to used to take every advantage I could to walk. When we first when we first uh, um, went to, back to Jerusalem, I was working at the Jerusalem Plaza Hotel, mm-hmm. which which is in the which is in Independence Park in the heart of the city. So I would uh, when I went to work, I would take the bus from my neighborhood to, to uh, Ramat Eshkol, which was, a, which was another neighborhood in northern Jerusalem, and I'd get off the bus, and then I'd walk through, through um, uh, uh, Sharim, which is, a, which is the, uh, uh, the main Orthodox uh, community in Jerusalem, and then down through the, through, 
up uh, King George Street to the hotel, going right through the heart of the city. So it was a lot of contrast between walking in the Orthodox neighborhood and then walking in the commercial area of the city. And when I went to work for the Jerusalem Post, I used to, again, I would take the bus um, and, and get off on Jaffa Road. Jaffa Road is, if you know Jerusalem, it's the main road in the city. Um, and I would walk, uh, I, I would walk up up Jaffa Road past the, the Shuk, the, the Jewish market in Jerusalem, um, past the old uh, um, Sharet Sedek Hospital. Uh, it, it has since moved to a, a but to a new location, and then uh, through through the area um, uh, which has some very old and picturesque housing, to the to the Jerusalem Post. The Jerusalem Post then was located in the area called Romema, which is close to the to the western uh, entrance to the city. Mm-hmm. Was it challenging for you to learn Hebrew? What obstacles did you have to overcome in order to? gain proficiency? Well, I think it's challenging to learn any new language, but Hebrew is especially uh, uh, um, problematic, of course, uh, to uh, to people because, uh, or at least uh, to people from the West, because it doesn't have the, ha- have the Roman alphabet. It has its own alphabet. So fortunately, I had learned uh, uh, the, al- the Hebrew alphabet when I uh, uh, became bar mitzvah when I was a kid. Um, but Bonnie had to learn, she had to learn the alphabet. And, and of course, there's a, there's a, a, a printed alphabet and there's a written alphabet, which are really, they're not all that similar. So, so she had to learn both of those. Again, it's, it's a very difficult thing. So Bonnie, Bonnie and I had different ways of learning the language. I would uh, um, uh, take a notebook with me um, when I went to work, especially on the kibbutz. Um, and, and when my boss at work would say a word I didn't know, I'd write it in the notebook, and then I'd run home in the evening and look up the word in the dictionary. Wow. And I also, and I also uh, um, uh, um, subscribed to a, book it to excuse me to a newspaper in easy hebrew and again i would try to read the newspaper look up the words that i didn't know in the dictionary and write them down and try to memorize them bonnie on the other hand was uh, did it in a much more natural way she was the she was the nurse on the kibbutz and um so she she began to pick up conversation to pick up words and conversation that she had with patients at the clinic. And slowly, slowly, she learned the language that way. Wow. Both of us, both of us uh, um, gained a lot by listening to our, to our children speak and by speaking with our children. That was, you know, that's always a great way to work, to, uh, uh, to learn. <clears throat> And it took us several years, but uh, but after a few years, we could uh, listen to and understand the news on television. I could read the Hebrew language newspapers, and she could read novels in Hebrew, which she still does, incidentally. 
you allude to several Arabs from East Jerusalem being in your class. What was it like studying Hebrew with, with them? Were their experiences in the class different from yours? So, so I was in, this was, I was in several uh, um, opans. Opans are schools where immigrants or others learn the Hebrew language. And in this, this one was, was, as you said, in, uh, in Jerusalem, and it had several uh, uh, um, Arabs from East Jerusalem who, who wanted to learn Hebrew. And very quickly, I, I came to understand that learning Hebrew was much easier for them than it was for me and for other people. And the reason was because there's, there are many words, maybe not many, maybe I should say some, words that are common to both Hebrew and Arabic, especially basic words, you know, <laughs> the bread, day, words like that. Yes. And very interestingly, numbers. Yes. The numbers, the numbers in, in both Hebrew and Arabic, except for two, two is a, two is the outlier, is the outlier. But besides for two, the numbers from one to 10 are really essentially the same in both languages. They're, they're pronounced differently, but really, if you, if you pay attention, they're the same. And I, and I don't want to give anyone the wrong idea. I don't speak Arabic at all. Right. But if I listen, but if I listen carefully to a speech by some Arab speaker, there, there's a word or two that I can pick up that's similar that's similar to Hebrew that I understand. Yes. Did you communicate with any of your fellow Arab students? Um, I really don't remember. Okay, don't worry. What was it like living through the Yom Kippur War in 1973? It was very scary. Um, uh, uh, um, the war started out very badly for Israel, very badly, uh, um, to, uh, to the extent that had the Syrian army been better organized and better led, uh, um, there was nothing on the Golan Heights uh, um, between the Syrian army and Haifa. And if they would have gotten to Haifa, they would have cut the country in half, and that might have been the end of the Jewish state. But fortunately, they didn't. So things were bad there. Things were very bad in the uh, in the on the uh, Egyptian front in the south, where the Egyptians were able to cross the Suez Canal, uh, killing and capturing uh, the few Israeli soldiers that were there on the first day. On the second day, Israel tried a tried a huge counterattack. Maybe it was the second or third day. I, I'm I'm not sure which was a complete failure because the uh, Egyptian soldiers were armed with uh, Soviet uh, anti-tank missiles and anti-aircraft missiles. And Israel lost a lot of tanks and a lot of airplanes and a lot of soldiers on that day. Hmm. So, uh, so eventually uh, um, things worked out. Uh, um, Israel learned how to cope with these things. And of course they, uh, uh, the Israeli army pushed the Syrian army back. And in the south, um, Ariel Sharon uh, and 
and his men found a place that was unguarded and crossed the Suez Canal and trapped the whole army uh, um, on the other side of the canal. Right. So for, fortunately, fortunately, Bonnie and I didn't, or nobody actually, no civilians knew the extent of the disaster that was happening uh, uh, in the war, uh, which I'm sure would have uh, would have uh, frightened us very much. Um, and where we lived uh, um, in wartime, uh, we lived uh, not far from East Jerusalem and from an Arab village, which was, again, during the war, a little bit disconcerting. Um, but but we managed to uh, manage to be okay. I, I spent a couple days during the war, I talk about this in the book, um, on a frontline uh, um, kibbutz uh, on the Lebanese border. And of course, unfortunately, I had to leave Bonnie, Bonnie and, their, and the two small girls uh, alone. Um, interestingly, Bonnie's parents had been visiting us and they left the country uh, a week before the war started. Um, and they were in Europe, they were visiting Europe before going back home. And of course, uh, as soon as the war started, uh, um, they gave us a call and suggested that this would be a perfect time for us to leave the country and come back to America. Anyway. What was it like living in French Hill, Hagivahat Sorfatit, in the 1970s? Do you remember what your apartment was like? Sure, sure, sure. We lived in a, in a very nice, the nicest uh, apartment that we lived in uh, while we were in Israel. Very, very nice, brand new apartment. Um, and and our our building and several other buildings. I don't remember if it's most, but several other buildings were completed. Mm-hmm. But the rest of uh, the rest of the neighborhood was like living in a frontier town, because there were there were paving stones all over the place for for um, building uh, of sidewalks which had been completed or or uh, retaining walls which had to be built the the gardens were undone the the um, the shopping center was uh, was uncompleted so it was really it was really sort of like living in a western border town there was this real feeling of, of incompleteness, but as I say, it was a very the apartment was very nice, and the neighborhood uh, um, eventually, after it was completed, became nice as well. Mm. What can you tell us about Kibbutz Kfar Giladi? Okay, so. <clears throat> Fargiladi was one of the oldest uh, um, such uh, uh, um, communities in the country. It had been founded. It, it had been founded in 1916 by members of a group from Russia called the, Shom- the, the Shomera movement. What they, what their goal was, was to uh, come to come to uh, Palestine and to be guards 
at the various Jewish settlements. The uh, the Jews have been using Arabs as guards. Might not be such. Might not have been such a good idea. So anyway, and they and they got this piece of land in the Upper Galilee to uh, to house their families while they were guarding. Um, right down the road from from Fargiladi was another Jewish settlement called Tel Chai. And um, um, Tel Chai and Kfar Giladi have become uh, very, very well known, famous all over uh, Israel for the for the incident that I'm going to tell you about. So, uh, so, so in 1918, uh, um, a group of Arabs attacked Tel Chai, and um, during the attack, one of the officers, uh, one of the Jewish soldiers. Um, at Tel Chai was mortally wounded. And according to legend, uh, um, um, Trump, Trumpledore was his name, Joseph Trumpledore, as he, as he lay dying, he said, it's good to die for one's country. So, so again, this, this uh, vaulted him into the Valhalla of, uh, of, of Jewish heroes. And, and, and on Kibbutz Kvar Giladi, there's a, uh, uh, there's a lion that's in his honor in the, in the Kibbutz cemetery. So, so the Kibbutz was, uh, when we got there, it was almost 60 years old. Uh, we were there when it celebrated its 60th anniversary. It, um, it had uh, um, uh, cotton fields, fish ponds, um, orange groves, apple orchards, um, a, a uh, eyeglass frame factory. So it was a it was a sophisticated uh, um, um, operation by the time we got there. What was your daughter Deborah's experience like at Kifutz, Kfar Giladi? So, so we have three daughters. They all have very strong personalities. Uh, um, but Deborah, when she was a child, was a handful. Mm -hmm. I remember. I remember the first thing that she's. Or, or that she was able to say when she was, I, I don't know, a year, a year and a half, two years, or whatever she started talking was Bola Otsa. So Bola was her version of her name. Her name in Hebrew is Devora. And, and Bola was as close as she could get to saying her name. And Otsa in Hebrew means wants. So she was, she was immediately saying Bola Otsa, Bola Otsa, Bola Otsa. Deborah wants, Deborah wants, Deborah wants. And she, um, she, she was, as I say, a handful. Uh, when Bonnie would feed her, I can remember Bonnie sitting next to her, shoving food in her mouth. And, and she was uh, very angry because Bonnie wasn't, wasn't getting the food in there fast enough. So Bonnie would, um, would give her a, a, a piece of a cooked hot dog to hold in her hand. And in between uh, um, her eating the cereal or whatever it is that Bonnie was feeding her, she would take the hot dog and try to put it in her mouth, but instead would wind up putting it, 
up her nose or in her ears or someplace like that. Um, um, anyway, she, um, she, she was the cause of, of a basic change in the kibbutz system. So uh, um, the way things worked on the kibbutz was the children were either in school or in their house, in their children houses during the day. At four o'clock in the afternoon, they would come home to be with their parents, eat dinner, and then um, um, the, either the ch children, if they were old enough, they would go back to their own houses to sleep. Or if, if they were younger, their, their parents would take them to, to their house to sleep. So in other words, the children and parents slept separately. So, um, so when we got to the kibbutz, Bonnie would take, uh, take Deborah and she would take her to her, to her child's house. She would put on, a, put on her pajamas, read her a story, maybe read her several stories until she dozed off and then come home. And almost every night, the woman who was in charge of the uh, of Deborah's uh, house in the evening, you know, they had an adult there in case some problem came up, would come and knock on our door and tell Bonnie, "Your daughter is screaming." <clears throat> so, so Bonnie would get dressed, go back to the children's house, read uh, Deborah some more stories. Um, um, and then, uh, then she would go back to sleep. So this situation went on for a long time, maybe for two weeks or three weeks. And finally, Bonnie got tired of having to, having to, to uh, get dressed every evening and go to the house. So she announced she was taking, she was taking Deborah home to sleep from now on. And, and when she did this, she started a stampede in the, uh, uh, um, in the kibbutz. Now, Kfar Giladi was not the first kibbutz to have children live at, uh, um, sleeping at home, but until Deborah came, the children were sleeping in the uh, in the in the kibbutz housing. But afterwards, all of the younger children, at least, um, um, slept with their parents, um, while the older children were still sleeping in the children's houses. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In chapter six, you describe your traumatic car accident. Can you describe your memory of this experience in more detail? Sure. So um, um, I had taken Bonnie, Bonnie to work at, uh, at Adasa Hospital uh, on Mount Scopus. And I, I was uh, in the, uh, I was then in uh in reserve duty and, and I was going to be discharged, <clears throat> excuse me. And I somehow, I managed to hit a, a truck with gasoline balloons on it uh, um, on my Gosh. way to be discharged. 
Gosh. Sorry? Gosh. Yeah, gosh, exactly. <laughs> so um, uh, um, I got out. Uh, I unfortunately was not wearing my seatbelt. That is, incidentally, the last time I went anywhere without my seatbelt. But it's very much like uh, um, closing the stable after the horses get out. Um, because I, I had um, smashed my head into the windshield and, and opened up a very uh, nasty cut on my head. And I had smashed um, my shoulder into the steering wheel and I, and I had broken my arm. Of course, I didn't know that then. So I flagged down a, uh, a, um, a tour, a, a, another car, uh, um, which happened to be a new car. And the poor, the poor driver of the car was very, uh, very uh, reluctant to let me, uh, with all my bleeding, get into his new car. You know, cars are very expensive in Israel. Yes. And so, <laughs> so he was reluctant, but he let me get in. And so, and so, uh, um, he took me. Uh, I was very close to the hospital. He took me to the hospital. I went to the emergency room. Uh, uh, um, they called Bonnie, who came down. Um, and anyway, they, they, uh, they, they fixed, uh, or they fixed, uh, on my arm, they put, they, they, uh, put my arm in a sling and they sewed up my, uh, head. Um, this, the service in the hospital was very good. I can tell you, incidentally, as an aside, speaking of service in, speaking of service in, uh, Israeli hospitals, um, I can tell you that bon Bonnie worked uh, at Adassa uh, on Mount Scopus for 10 years. And she always told me that the level of professionalism, of competence of the doctors in Adassa was very high, very good. Um, anyway, so uh, so my experience was, uh, was very positive from this. I can also tell you uh, about a not so positive experience that we had in an Israeli hospital. Um, uh, um, we were on, we were camping at the Sea of Galilee and Bonnie um, um, broke her wrist. So I took her to the hospital in Tiberias, the local hospital. And the, uh, the doctor there, who, who incidentally happened to be an American, reset her wrist. And, um, and that was that. But, but when she got back to when she got back to uh, Jerusalem, and the and the docs at uh, Hadassah Hospital looked at her wrist, they said they have to. They said that the, the that the doctor in Tiberias had done a very bad job, and they were going to have to re-break her wrist. Oh no! And to reset, yes. Oh hell, is right. And to reset it. Um. So 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 I guess the lesson the uh, the lesson for that is. That in Israel, like in like in most countries, uh, the 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 healthcare, medical care, is much better in cities than it is in rural areas. You go on in that chapter to write as follows: One of the worst calumnies propagated by Israel's enemies <clears throat> is that soldiers in the IDF are trigger happy. Nothing could be further from the truth, at least during my time in the army. How did your experience in the Israel Defense Forces shatter your own personal preconceptions about military service that you may have had before you began to serve? 
And what are some other misconceptions about the IDF held abroad that your personal experience would prove false? So um, Israeli soldiers, like all people, are some of them are good, some of them are bad. Um, and, and I'm sure that if they had the opportunity, the bad ones would do bad things to, to Arabs. But fortunately, fortunately, the Israeli government does not allow such things. Um, and so, as I write in the book, if, if anyone fired their gun um, without receiving a permission from, uh, from, uh, the commander, from their commander, they're going to be in very serious trouble. Okay, and the reason is, I would hope that the reason that, uh, that the uh, um, Israeli government and military officials are so uh, concerned about, about civilian casualties is that they're good people. But maybe the reason is because they're concerned about Israel being condemned in the press. But for whatever reason is, I can assure you, I can assure, assure uh, all of your listeners that um, that the army takes this very seriously. So, but but there is a problem with security in Israel. So, what does it mean? It means that um, it, on the many times that I've flown El Al from Israel to America, if there's an Arab passenger on the aircraft, he receives much more serious scrutiny than Jewish passengers do. Uh, it's pro it's probably unfair. Uh, because the because the passenger is probably a peaceful person, but security security is is so important, and Israel is so is so surrounded is a completely surrounded by enemies that this is necessary. Mm -hmm. um, I know that the army does things does things that um, that have. I mean, at least during my time, greatly annoyed uh, um, Arabs. I can remember. I can remember um, um, during one of my reserve duties, being in full mil full of battle gear, and and walking down the main street in in the city of Nablus on the West Bank. So I'm sure that any any uh, resident of Nablus who saw me doing this would be very angry. Here I am, some some uh, some outsider with all this weaponry, with a M16 and with a, you know, with all of the all of the magazines, all, all the full magazines coming down his street. I can also tell you that if you, that if you're an Arab or if you look like an Arab and you were in the in in the uh, vicinity of a terrorist uh, uh, attack. Uh, anywhere in the country that you would be stopped by security people and questions. So all of this, in a sense, it's, it's unjust. But I can just tell you that in Israel, because of its situation, because of the fact that it's surrounded by, uh, by enemies, um, that security trumps everything. What was it like living in Jerusalem during the time of Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt at the time's visit? 
1977. It was really an exciting time. But I have to say, in the beginning, many Israelis were were um, uh, uh, skeptical about the visit because, uh, um, you know, the uh, the Arabs had had always refused to uh, uh, refused to negotiate with Israel, and here was the was the leader of the leading uh, Arab nation saying that he's going to come to Jerusalem to talk peace. So there were, there were people who thought that this was all a ruse and that, uh, that, the, that the Egyptians were planning some kind of a terrible secret attack or something, and that they were using the, the talk of a visit to, to, um, to confuse uh, Israel. But once Sadat came to the country, people were very excited, very excited about the prospects of peace and very happy. Uh, um, but I think, uh, and they were very hopeful, but I think that maybe they were too hopeful. And the reason I say this is it's true that that the visit, that Sadat's visit eventually led to a peace treaty between between Egypt and Israel, which is a good thing. But the hopes for warm relations between the two countries that, that so many uh, Israelis had has never been realized. There's, a, there's sort of a, a cold peace between the two countries. Yes. The, the only neighbor uh, um, of Israel to, to sign a peace treaty so far with it is Jordan. Um, and I have to say that, e that even in Jordan, the, the, uh, the government sees value in peace with Israel, but most of the population is uh, virulently uh, um, anti-Israel. Um, and, and 44 years after all this happened, or 40 years after all this happened, there have been some Arab countries that have made peace with Israel recently, but these are not these are countries that are more on the fringe of the Arab world and not um, and not people who were who were um, actively at war with the Jewish state. What are your memories of Israel's inflation crisis of the late 1970s? In your chapter, you describe it in some detail. And I was wondering if you could paint a picture of that, that crisis for our listeners. So, so you, can, you can only imagine, okay, the Israelis got paid salaries once a month. At the beginning of the month, you got your salary, whatever it, whatever it was. And by the end of the month, that money, whatever money was left in your account, was worth 10% less or 15% less. Or at the end of the crisis, 25% less. Yes. So you, you can imagine the, the panic that people went through and the, uh, and the steps that they were willing to take to do something about it. So everyone, everyone was trying to counter the inflation by buying dollars which was illegal but nonetheless there there was a black market there was a there was a black an open black market in east jerusalem where you could go to go to buy dollars um and and then there were places in tel aviv where you could and elsewhere uh where you could buy 
dollars. As I say, the transactions were all illegal and they really didn't help because the, the guy who was, who was taking your, your shekels and giving you dollars, he also understood that the shekels that he had were going to be worth a lot less in a month's time than they were now. So he took uh, appropriate action. <clears throat> it, it, was all, it was also the case that, let's say you wanted to buy a sofa. So, so ordinarily, uh, credit was uh, much more difficult to get back in those days. So ordinarily, if you wanted to buy a sofa if, and you were an Israeli, you would uh, save for several months and go out and buy your sofa. But now, if you save, if you if you try doing that, by the time you got around to buying your sofa, its cost would be more, and the and the shekels that you saved would be less. So people, so people were buying buying uh, 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 things as soon as they could, even 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 prematurely. And of course, all this fed the inflation. It made the inflation worse. So, so eventually, uh, um, in 1985, during the time of the national unity government, they, the uh, officials were able to get this straightened out. Uh, <clears throat> and since then, the shekel, the Israeli currency, has been a model for the world. It, it, there's been almost no inflation uh, in all that time. As a matter of fact, if you would have, if you would have taken taken dollars at that time and bought shekels you would have been or you would have been a lot better off than you have kept your money in dollars in light of israel's significant economic growth in the recent decade what can what lessons can the memory of israel's hyper hyperinflation crisis teach israel and israelis today do you worry that today's economic growth in Israel might not be sustainable? Well, I don't. I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know whether the growth is going to be is going to be sustainable. I can only say that the Israeli economy is now is completely different than it was in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties. Mm -hmm. It's it's much more sophisticated. It's much more prosperous israel is now the startup nation it's it's right. one of the leading countries in the world in especially in high-tech startups so the country is on a much firmer economic base base than it was uh oh, when i lived there <clears throat> so uh, i'm not sure at all that the people that that the rulers today remember Remember, this was uh, this was all uh, f 40 and 45 years ago when all this happened, 35, 40, 45 years ago. And I'm not sure that, uh, that the leaders keep this in mind. But again, the economy is much more uh, substantial. And one of, one of the causes of inflation is governments want to spend more money than they need to spend. But Israel now is in a much stronger position and it shouldn't have to do any of that kind of stuff so i'm fairly optimistic in chapter eight you present a picture illustrated by cartoonist avi katz in 
the publication News View. This illustration depicts Menachem Begin, Shimon Perez, Yitzhak Rabin, and Ariel Sharon dressed in American cowboy dress. Can you describe this image for our listeners who cannot see it with their own eyes? What does it signify? Sure. So, so the, this cartoon was really one of the one of the best things that I have ever been involved with in journalism. I just think it's it's just brilliantly executed. What it's supposed to show is that the the uh, the chaos of Israeli politics when uh, when Menachem Begin uh, uh, resigned in nineteen. 85. So we have, we have people firing, as you said, it's a Western town. So we have people firing guns uh, from the rooftops. We have uh, a a fist fight, a a real fist fight going on on the ground. Um, And then we have uh, many, many uh, Israeli politicians looking on. Uh, maybe covetously, as Menachem Begin gives up his uh, gives up his role. Now, Begin uh, Begin around that time had been under under severe criticism for the conduct of the Lebanon War. Um, he had also been under he had also been severely criticized because um, the the uh, Christians uh, um, massacred many. Many Palestinian refugees in the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps in Lebanon, yes. and Israel was supposed to be uh, was supposed to be in charge of the area. So Israel, uh, um, instead of the Christians receiving so much criticism, Israel received criticism for not restraining them. And in addition to all that, uh, um, um, uh, Begin's um, wife, his uh, his beloved wife, had died a year before that. So all these things uh, kind of depressed him. If you if you look at the uh, at the cartoon, you see a very uh, disturbed looking Begin, who has uh, already taken off his gun belt and thrown it thrown it uh, um, into the dust on the street. <clears throat> Excuse me, and he's uh, he's in the process of throwing his uh, his sheriff's badge on the ground, and then we have um, um, two 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 young boys who are um, uh, Yitzhak Rabin and Shimon Peres, who who were the leaders of the Labor Party, the opposition party, scrambling to pick up the gun and to pick up the uh, to pick up the uh, sheriff's metal that he that he had thrown to the ground it is a a, a very accurate uh, uh, symbolic representation of what was going on in israeli politics also in the same chapter you will mm-hmm. you allude to your experience interviewing the head of neture karta what can you tell us about this experience sure so I really don't remember all that much about the substance of the interview. It was, it, it was a long time ago. I, I'm sure that I asked him questions about um, why it was that his organization was so anti-Israel and so close to the Palestinians. <clears throat> but the real interesting thing about this interview was 
where it took place. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the Natura Carta and Hirsch, Hirsch as its leader, uh, um, are virulently anti-Israel. And so Hirsch, when I called him to, to try to set up an interview, uh, refused to be interviewed anywhere in Jewish Jerusalem. So what we finally settled on was having an interview at the Mandelbaum Gate. So th- this place, this place was a a a, a house a, a house owned by Jews in in East Jerusalem before the Israeli War of Independence um, that had uh, uh, that had uh, become um, part of part of East Jerusalem. It was, it, it had been converted into a, uh, into a check, checkpoint by the Jordanian uh, um, um, officers, of, of, by the Jordanian army uh, between uh, 1948 and 1967. And now it was, the, uh, the building had been, uh, uh, the building had been destroyed. There was nothing left of the house. And it was a, uh, it was a, a parking lot. So, so um, Hirsch and I met in my 1972 uh, um, 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 Beetle in the parking lot of this of this place, which wow. is the only, which is the only time that I've ever interviewed anybody in my car. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I think what I think is important about uh, um, about the interview was that. That it sh- that it showed to me, the Torah Karta are all, were in addition to being anti-Israel, they were ultra-Orthodox Jews, and I think that the hostility that the Torah Karta showed to Israel was held, perhaps not to such a radical ex- extent, but by many members of the of the Israeli Orthodox community. So I think that's why it was a, an important interview. Mm-hmm. How hard was it for you to leave Israel? Can you describe your emotional state? Sure. So <clears throat> it was very hard to leave Israel. Um, Bonnie and I had never talked about uh, leaving before we ran into uh, um, very serious uh, financial problems. <clears throat> um, um, in addition to, to my general uh, reluctance to leave the country because I re- loved living there and I loved the country, <clears throat> I was also, all of my journalistic experience had been in Israel. Um, and I didn't know how that would play out in America. I don't know how... I, how American newspapers and magazines would look at someone whose only experience was 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 in Israel. That worried me. But but the truth is that that Bonnie and I really had very little choice about doing it. We were we just gone over the cliff financially. Did you ever regret leaving? Of course, yes. Of course, I regretted leaving. Although, I, I mean, I have to say that 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 things worked out for both of us. Bonnie Bonnie got a job in her profession. I got a job in my profession. We we were we were happy but poor in Israel, 
uh, um, um, and uh, we're no longer poor. We're not wealthy, but we're not poverty stricken as we were were in Israel. So, I mean, I have to say that uh, the things have worked out for us. Could you ever see yourself living in Israel again, either today or in the future? And, um, honestly, no. I, 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 we're just—it's—it is a, a a pain in the proverbial butt to make Aliyah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even today, where the situation is much is much better for for people making Aliyah, it's still difficult. And Bonnie and I are. How were your kids, Lauren, Deborah, and Avigail, impacted by your choice to leave Israel? So they, um, Lauren. Our, our oldest child didn't come back to America with us. She was living with her boyfriend and they stayed in our apartment. Her, her boyfriend, she and her boyfriend eventually became husband and wife. She didn't leave Israel, at, at least not at that time. Deborah, Deborah and Abby were very unhappy about having to leave Israel and specifically about leaving all their friends. This was the only life they had known. Um, so they initially were very unhappy. Um, but I think uh, things have worked out for them as well. Um, they, because Abby, uh, excuse me, uh, Deborah uh, stayed with us for two years, and then she went back to Israel to serve in the army. Um, and while she was uh, serving in the army, one of her, one of her uh, um, instructors, um, um, became her boyfriend and then her husband. Yes. And um, Abby, our youngest child, um, uh, um, met her met her Israeli husband um, in America, and and they both now live in Boston. Mm-hmm. And had we not come back here, had we stayed in Israel, the those people simply uh, um, would never have had. Excuse me. Uh, would never have had. The opportunity of meeting with each other. So, so I think I think they would say now, in retrospect, that things worked out very well for both of them. Lovely. In chapter eleven, you share a photograph of yourself and your wife Bonnie with your many grandchildren, which was taken in Modi'in. The picture shows your grandchildren: Avia, Amit, Noam. Adva, Daphna, Yotam, and Hadas. Can you tell us something about each of your grandchildren? How do their personalities and aptitudes differ from one another? Well, well, you're giving a proud grandfather a chance to brag about his grandchildren. This, sure. could, <laughs> this could go on for a long time. So, okay, so so our oldest uh, our oldest daughter uh, Lauren has three three children so her so her oldest daughter her oldest child is her daughter um adva adva has uh, has uh, finished her army service um and she has finished she took a course to become a dietitian and she's now getting ready to do her practical work for for this profession uh, Lauren's uh, um, son, Yotam, um, finished his army service, and he's getting ready to go study uh, physics at the Technion. Both 
uh, both Lauren and uh, and uh, Yotam have uh, bo- have boy and girlfriends who we hope eventually will become husbands and wives. Um, Avia, the youngest uh, of the Lauren's uh, children, um, is an accomplished gymnast. She's now she's now um, uh, doing her service in the army. She'll she'll get out in March. And I'm not sure exactly what she's planning to do. Hmm. Deborah has two daughters. Um, the older one, Daphna, um, has finished high school, and she's getting ready to go into the army. She'll her her induction date is in October. Um, her younger uh, daughter is named Hadas, um, who's the Daphna is the more um, technically adept of the two daughters, and Adas is uh, more artistically um, endowed. They they were both uh, Deborah and her family were just here for a visit. Um, they, they this was a vacation, a pre a pre draft vacation for Daphna, and they were they were on the west coast because both girls love to dance. And there's some dance studio, some famous dance studio, the name of which I don't have the foggiest idea of what it is, uh, with a famous dance instructor. Again, I don't know his name. And, and in this dance studio, you don't have to be a member. You could buy uh, um, lessons. And so they were there dancing, and they went on a tour of the West and uh, came to visit us and, and are now back in Israel. And our youngest daughter, Abby, as I said, Abby and her husband, Mayor, and their two sons live, in, live outside of Boston. Um, um, Noam is uh, 14. He's in high school. And he's, a, he's an avid and I think pretty good soccer player. Um, and his younger brother, Amit, um, who's uh, 10, <clears throat> is also uh, a very a very enthusiastic soccer player. Quite a roster, very impressive. Well, thank you. You close the book with the following words in chapter 11. Israel did quite well before I came and seems also to have endured my absence quite nicely. However, I benefited greatly from living there. My self-esteem grew. I liked myself better, felt more comfortable, as the old cliche goes, in my own skin. Remember, we went to Israel, Livnot Ulehibanot, to build and be built. I don't know how we did in the building, but my being built was a resounding success. Why did you choose to end the book with these words? Because I think, I think I have been more influenced by having lived in Israel than, than any other aspect of my life, except, of course, for my family. I went to Israel, uh, um, I think, as a sort of a, of a typical American liberal. Um, and I left Israel, I think as someone who, who was much more able to look reality in the eyes, 
in the face or however you look reality and to and to deal with it and so and so for that i'm very grateful to israel um and that's why i ended the book like that as we bring this interview to a close i'm incredibly grateful for the time we've spent together and for how much i've learned from you the last question i'd like to ask you is how have you spent your time since completing this book well, I, I, as I said, I, I continue to review books for the Jerusalem Post and Washington Post, but I spent a lot of time trying to uh, trying to uh, um, interest people in the book. So I had a uh, so I had a blog which I spent a, a lot of time and effort on, on my synagogue uh, website. Um, and I have, uh, and I and I have a a uh, Facebook page and a uh, Twitter page, Twitter page, both of which I guarantee you I have have no interest in <laughs> outside of my book. So so I've spent a lot of time working on working to try to get people to 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 take a look at my book. Thank you. Um... I'm extremely grateful for the time that we have spent together today. Thank you for your generosity in sharing so much of your personal experience and personal wisdom with us. Thank, thank you very much. It's been, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. It's been my privilege, my privilege and my honor. Uh, to our listeners, this has been Ari Barbalant, your host with the New Books in Israel Studies podcast here today with my honored guest, Aaron Leibel. Aaron is the author of the new book, Figs and Alligators, An American Immigrant's Life in Israel in the 1970s and 1980s, published in New York by Chickadee Press 2021. Thank you very much. <laughs>